Many of you know me. I have the privilege of getting to share some thoughts with you this morning. Two weeks ago, Andy shared about um, being, being, or making room for Jesus. Last week was making room for others. This week we're going to talk about making room for seekers. A few weeks ago, I took my brother Stan shopping and to get his hair cut, and I dropped him off at the, the stylist place. I went and ran some errands, came back to get him. Just before he went in, I'd given him his debit card to pay for it, and I came back, went in. He was almost done. A few minutes later, he came out just as beautiful as he is now. And we went up to go ahead and pay for his haircut. He checked his wallet. He couldn't find his debit card. He checked his pockets. He couldn't find the debit card. So I did a, a check of his wallet, and I couldn't find the debit card. So I went out to where I dropped him off. I checked the car, checked around the car seat, checked under the car seat, looked around on the ground on where we'd, I dropped him off and back into the, the shop, no debit card. That's kind of an uncomfortable feeling. There's this debit cards lying around. Sometimes they don't bother to ask you for the code. So we ended up paying with cash and piled into the car. Fortunately, we were in a town that had a bank that we bank with, so we headed to the bank to get the card canceled and order a new one. Parked, started walking in. Stan handed me his wallet again, and I did one more check. Tucked way back under in a place that I never put anything was a debit card. That was really a relief. There was relief, there was thankfulness, and there was joy because we found what we were looking for. Have you ever found yourself looking for something? Maybe car keys. Car keys aren't a big deal unless you're late for work. Or maybe it's hunting for information because you have some symptoms you want to Google and find out maybe what it is, or even worse, maybe you have a diagnosis and you want to find out more and more about what that means. We seek when we're in need. Anybody have fun with watching the kids today? <laughs> I happen to love kids. And I think Christmas programs are one of the most special times. 
Unfortunately for me, I have to follow that act. Uh, <laughs> that doesn't work well. Today, chances are, you know, when you have a kids program, the things you're going to remember are when Jimmy was up here picking his nose or Carol, for the third time, was throwing her dress over her head. That's the stuff you remember. But I want to try to make it easy for you. I want to give you one thing to try to remember from today. And that thing is, God is still making room for those who are seeking after good news that will bring them great joy. And then a question, am I? In the 15th chapter of Luke, Jesus gave us three examples of people who were seeking something and found joy. You may or may not remember them. The first was a, a shepherd who lost a sheep and went and found it. He hunted and hunted. He found it. He brought it back and he had a party with his neighbors to celebrate that he found that sheep. The second one was a woman who had lost a coin somewhere in her house. She did a spring house cleaning to try to find that thing, and she did find it, and when she found it, she threw a party for her friends because she found it. She had great joy. The third one may be a little more familiar. That was a guy who took off from his family. His, his dad was concerned about him, watched and prayed for him, and eventually that man came back as the prodigal son, and his father threw a huge banquet to celebrate his return. They all found great joy when they found what they were seeking. The Advent story describes good news of great joy, and it came to those who were seeking him. Matthew 2 Verses 10 and 11 talk about the Magi. It says, When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they found gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. They offered gifts. At the birth of Jesus... Men arrived who had been studying the book of Isaiah and the stars that revealed them to them a coming king. They were seeking out Jesus. These magi were not Jews. They were pagans from a very far distance away. Craig Keener in the InterVarsity Press commentary on Matthew says... These magi are astrologers, which is why they noticed the star to begin with. Many sources from this period report the skill of magi in divination, but Matthew's audience would probably recall first the magi in their translation of the Old Testament. Those magi were Daniel's enemies, the ones who sought to have him thrown into the lion den. They were selfish, incompetent, and brutal pagans, according to Daniel 2.2. 2. 
In this period, when the Magi came, they probably would have been Zoroastrian, which is a, a Mid-Eastern religion. But Matthew's readers would think more of Daniel's antagonists. The story in Matthew reveals God making room for those who are seeking after the good news that will bring them great joy. Although the Bible forbid divination, Deuteronomy particularly, which includes astrology, for one special event in history, the God who rules the heavens chose to reveal himself where the pagans were looking. Without condoning astrology, Matthew's narrative challenges our prejudices against outsiders to our faith. Even the most pagan of pagans may respond if Jesus is, respond to Jesus if given the opportunity. What a resounding call for the church today to pursue a culturally sensitive yet uncompromising commitment to missions. You may have heard of St. Augustine, sometimes known as St. Augustine of Hippo from the late 300 AD to early 400 ADs. He made an interesting statement. There is a God-shaped vacuum in every man that only Christ can fill. History's recorded many people, groups, and individuals who've been seekers. Since God does not desire that any should perish, he's used various ways to make room for those seekers. There's an excellent book on the subject that I would suggest that if you have any interest, please read it. It's called Eternity in Their Hearts by Don Richardson. He documents people groups who have a vague God or traditions of a lost book or strange customs that parallel biblical customs and their responses to the truth when the truth is revealed to them. I'd like to read to you from that book an example. The Karen people, which is a tribal group in Burma or Thailand. In 1795, an encounter took place in Rangoon, Burma. If the inhabitants of that, Bur at that village are not Burmese, asked a sun-helmeted English diplomat, what do they call themselves? Karen, replied the dipl diplomat's Burmese guide. Karian, mispronounced the Englishman. The guide left the mistake uncorrected. Very well, said the Britisher. Let's see what these Karian... Karianers look like. The Karianers, it turned out, were even more interested to, to discover what the Englishman looked like. This first encounter with a European's white face electrified people in that village. Drawn like moths to a lamp, they converged upon the diplomat who recoiled slightly as wiry brown hands reached out to touch his arms and cheeks. The Burmese guide, meanwhile, spoke disparagingly of the Karen. Be careful, they're just wild hill people given to stealing and fighting, he scoffed. It was not entirely true. The Karen were, in fact, the most progressive of Burma's many tribal peoples. Burmese, however, had abused and exploited the Karen for, for centuries, 
making such descriptions self-fulfilling. Nor could Burmese Buddhists forgive the Karen minority for stubbornly adhering to their own folk religion in the face of unremitting attempts by the Burmese to make Buddhists of them. The Englishman, in any case, was no longer listening to his guest. Cheerful Karen voices now charmed his ears. Every man, woman, and child around him glowed with radiant welcome. How refreshingly different, he thought, from the usual Burmese crowd's aloofness towards foreigners. A Karen man who could speak Burmese explained something to the guide. This is most interesting, the guide said. These tribesmen think you may be a certain white brother whom, they, whom the people have been expecting from time immemorial. How curious, replied the diplomat. Ask them what this white brother is supposed to do when he arrives. He's supposed to bring them a book, the guide said. A book just like one their forefathers lost ages ago. They're asking with bated breath, hasn't he brought it? Oh, the Englishman's guffawed. And who, pray tell, is the author whose book has power to charm illiterate folk like these? They say the author is Iwe, the supreme god. They also say, at this point, the Burmese man's face began to darken with unease, that the white brother, having given them the lost book, will thereby set them free from those who oppress them. The Burman began to fidget, the nerve of these Karen. This English diplomat was part of a team sent to arbitrate a dispute between Britain and Burma, a dispute which Burma feared might let Britain have pretext to add Burma to its empire. And now these wily Karen were practically inviting the British to do just that. Who would have guessed, he fumed, that simple tribesmen could be capable of such, such subtlety? Sensing the guide's displeasure, these Englishmen also began to squirm. One word from the guide and the Burmese authorities might descend with swords and spears against these humble villagers. Tell them they're mistaken, he ordered, hoping to set the Burman at ease. I have no acquaintance with this god called Iwa, nor do I have the slightest idea who their white brother could be. Followed by the guide, the diplomat strode out of the village. Hundreds of Karen, palled with disappointment, watched him leave. They intended no political ploy. They had simply repeated in all sincerity a tradition that had been handed them as a people since antiquity. Could her forefathers have been mistaken, asked the young Karen. Don't worry, responded an elder, managing a hopeful smile. One day he will come. Other prophecies may fail, but not this one. Returning to the newly established British embassy in Rangoon, the diplomat reported his strange experience in the Karen village to his superior, Lieutenant Colonel Michael Sims. Sims, in turn, mentioned it in a manuscript entitled An Account of an Embassy to the Kingdom of Ava in the year 1795, published 32 years later in Edinburgh, Scotland. There were other interactions with foreigners during the following years, 
and the Karem people kept looking for their white brother and his book. In 1817, a devout Baptist minister named Adoniram Judson came to Burma. He received little response among the Burmese and waited seven years to see his first Burmese Buddhist convert. He translated the Bible into Burmese since he had a lot of time on his hands. As Providence arranged it, a rawhide tough Karen man came to the household where Judson was staying. He was looking for work to help him pay a debt. Judson arranged employment for him. Ko Tha Bu had a violent temper and estimated that he had killed about 30 men during his former career as a robber. Gradually, Judson and the members of the household introduced Ko Tha Bu to the gospel of Jesus Christ. At first, the Karen man's brain seemed too dense to grasp the message. Then a change took place. Kothop Yu began asking questions about the origin of the Bible, of the gospel, and about these white strangers who had brought the message and the book which it contained, which contained it from the West. Suddenly everything fell into place for Kothop Yu. His spirit received the love of Jesus Christ like dry land absorbing rain. A new missionary, George Boardman, arrived and began a school for illiterate converts. Kothab Yu was one of the first students and worked hard to learn to read the Burmese Bible being translated by Judson. When the Boardmans moved to Tavoy in southern Burma, Ko begged to go with them. He immediately set out for the hills in southern Burma. Wherever he came to at Karin village, he preached the gospel. Almost every time he preached, virtually every Karen within earshot responded with wonder. Many flocked down to Tavoy to see the white brother who had arrived at last with the lost book. Meanwhile, Jonathan Wade arrived in Burma and went 200 miles north of Tavoy. Almost as quickly as Karen were converted and baptized, they became missionaries to spread the good news still further among their own people. Some of these Karen missionaries went another hundred miles north to Besan and preached. When American missionaries arrived later at Besan, they found 5,000 converts ready to be baptized. God is still making room for those seeking after good news that will bring them great joy. Are you? These days there are seekers from a lot of unexpected places. There are, there are some pictures I'd like to show you. In the upper left is a hardcore agnostic. His name is C.S. Lewis. The lady in the middle managed Planned Parenthood Clinic. Her name is Abby Johnson. Upper right was a fanatical political operative who did some 
pretty bad stuff to try to defeat his opponents. His name is Chuck Colson. The guy in the lower left was a gang leader in New York City who had some questions. His name is Nicky Cruz, which may not mean anything to you, but he became a believer and an evangelist. And the guy in the lower right is the son of a founder of Hamas. His name is Masab Hassan Youssef. He became a believer and actually became a spy for Israel. I just recently read about another man whose name was Matsuo Fuchida. Probably doesn't mean anything to you. He led the air attack on Pearl Harbor. Later became an evangelist. Even some in the entertainment industry these days are seeking. Sue and I have had a great privilege to be able to go on several missions trips. Commercial. There's a mission trip in conjunction with Cornerstone to Nicaragua in June. It's a two-week trip. If you have any inclination, it will change your life. I strongly would recommend it. When Sue and I went to Nicaragua, we went with a group called, it's now called Mentor. It used to be Students International. They had, because of the dictator in Nicaragua, they had to become a for-profit thing. But if you go with them, you work in one of several areas. Um, I happen to work in agriculture. I've worked in education. Uh, Sue worked in a teaching English as a second language school that they run. They work with the, some of the poorest people in Nicaragua. It's just amazing to work with them and see what they're doing. But on these trips, one evening is spent eating in the home of a Nicaraguan. Many of the Nicaraguans are rural, they're farmers, their homes have dirt floors. They're really amazingly clean, but they're dirt floors. They, they have very little. But they, you have a typical Nicaraguan dinner with them. You, hopefully you're able to have conversation. And, and uh, it's often, in my case, it's through an interpreter. Um, but it's really amazing to me to, to see how you can have a great time talking with these people who come from such very different cultural and political, religious and economic circumstances. Many of those people have found Jesus through the work of Students International. And those people, though they have nothing really compared to what we have, they're vibrant, joyous people. You know, our, it's, 
it just drives home the fact that our circumstances don't give us joy. Seeking and finding Jesus does. Especially during Advent, we have to make room in our busy schedules to seek after Jesus, as Andy mentioned two weeks ago. We need to make room for Jesus, for our neighbors, or for, and especially for those who are seeking, no matter who they are, or how imperfect they are, or how different from us they may be. God has always made room for those who are seeking after good news that will bring them great joy. Jesus kind of shocked the religious leaders of his day by associating with undesirables, like tax collectors and outcasts and sinners. I don't know if you know much about the relationship of tax collectors at that time, but the tax collectors were Jewish men who worked for the Romans, collecting Roman taxes and, just incidentally, extra for their own pockets. They were considered to be traitors. Jesus talked with them. He visited with them in their homes. He ate with them. And, of course, the Jewish leaders were just dismayed by that. Currently in our country, differing political positions are creating huge divides between peoples, even individuals within families. One of one, people of one political persuasion often consider those with differing views to be traitors. Dislike, hatred can occur between people without either person really knowing what the other person anything about the other person or even what they believe, what they think. They go by based on what they think the other person believes. It's almost impossible to have a civil discussion. It's easier to lump a person into a group than it is to deal with an individual. But Jesus dealt with individuals far more than he addressed groups. How am I doing with those whose views are different from mine? Am I willing to look at the whole person or just what I think are their views? What if that person is a closet seeker? Jesus associated with social outcasts. Leprosy is fairly rare now in the Western countries. In Jesus' time, a leper was a person who had a skin disease um, who under the Old Testament law was sent away. They couldn't be around normal society. Some forms of leprosy actually affect the peripheral nerves. You know, people lose sensation in their extremities. So at that time especially, that kind of people with that kind of leprosy could have grotesque um, injuries of various kinds because they couldn't experience pain. So they could be really disfigured. And of course, under Jewish law, a leper couldn't live in the vicinity of normal, healthy people. They were required to yell, unclean, if they came anywhere near a normal person. 
Touching a leper made a person ceremonially unclean and put them at risk of perhaps catching the disease. That meant that a leper could go for years without a human touch. Jesus had the courage to touch and heal those with leprosy. The Lord may quietly ask us to welcome a specific seeker when others think we're crazy or foolish. In Acts 9, a disciple named Ananias was told by God in a vision to go to Saul, place his hands on him, and restore his sight. Ananias knew about Saul's past, where he was imprisoning believers, and he was afraid of him. In spite of his concern, Ananias did the crazy thing and obeyed the Lord. The result was a seeker becoming a follower who couldn't stop talking about Jesus and who became known as the Apostle Paul. In John 4, the Bible tells us that Jesus had the audacity to speak with a Samaritan woman. Jews typically would walk an additional half day in their travels from north, northern to southern or other, the other way around in Israel. The reason they would do that was because they hated the Samaritans and the Samaritans hated them. Jesus not only went through Samaria, he talked with a Samaritan woman, not just a Samaritan man, but a woman, and not just a woman, but a woman who had a series of husbands and live-in boyfriends. That made her racially inferior, socially inferior, and morally inferior to a Jew, but loved by Jesus. Jesus was able to separate a person's actions from the person himself. He loved the person and hated the action that God had con that contradicted biblical behavior. If we're to make room for seekers, we must learn to make the same distinction. None of us began our relationship with, with God with our lives in perfect alignment with Scripture. None of us lives our life in perfect alignment with Scripture. So we need to be careful that we don't expect seekers to have their act together when we don't. Many of us silverbacks grew up in a church several decades ago and were put off by some of the ways used by younger people today to show their individuality. Tattoos, piercings, flamboyant hair coloring were not part of my youth. It was easy to even associate them with rebellion. But they don't have the same connotation today. We need to learn to look beyond the external stuff as Jesus did. If I'm feeling self-righteous and superior, chances are very good that I will convey that attitude to the person, to a, a person possibly creating a stumbling block between 
a seeker in Jesus. Here at Living Stones, we seek to be a non-traditional church. That means that we're conservative in our teaching, but we're not committed to doing ministry the same way everybody else does. If we're successful, we will continually have seekers who are different from the usual church crowd visiting and hopefully being welcomed, attending, participating in life with us, beginning a relationship with Jesus, growing in a relationship with Jesus, and finding the joy that goes with it. God is still making room for those who are seeking after good news that will bring them great joy. Am I? The Lord is still working the hearts of people to cause them to seek him, often during the Advent season. Those of us who have sought and found the Lord need to be on the lookout for seekers and make room for them in our lives and here at Living Stones. They might be people we work with, neighbors, relatives we visit with at Christmas, people we contact in our daily lives, or people God specifically directs us to. In Jeremiah 29, verse 13, God made a promise to the nation of Israel. He said, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. That promise is still in effect today for everyone who chooses to believe it. If you're a seeker here with us today, welcome. Andy or one of the elders would be, or the person who brought you would love to sit down with you and answer your questions about seeking Jesus and the joy that you can find when that happens. For those of you who found that joy in Jesus, I just have a few questions that we should all be asking ourselves to see if we're making room. Is the Lord bringing someone specific to mind that I need to reach out to? Is there someone significantly different from me that I need to engage with? Am I open to talking about anything other than politics with those holding different political views? Am I harboring feelings of superiority over people who are different racially, culturally, background, economics? economic status? Am I open to, to talking with people who hold different moral values or ways of expressing individuality or even different religious backgrounds? Am I listening to the Holy Spirit when he quietly prompts me to say something to someone or to do something for someone in Jesus' name? May God help us be part of the welcome wagon to aid seekers to find joy in Jesus this Advent season.